Welcome back to Man to Man Podcast. This is number 10, and this is Paul Arnold, your host. This is part two of a conversation I have with Ron Potter, who is an executive consultant, and we're talking about how to handle tough situations in the workplace and what skills you can add to your portfolio or your skill set. So enjoy my conversation with Ron Potter. And I am pleased to welcome Ron Potter back for another podcast. Ron, how are you doing today? I'm doing well, Paul. Thank you. Good to hear from you. One question that I sometimes think about and other people ask me about is, what skills can I add to help me at work? What skills help a man the most at work? And I came up with four um, top skills I see that help me and help other people, and I'm going to throw it back to Ron and get his input on this, and we'll talk about maybe some things you as a listener can do to make you more valuable member of your team or uh, be ready for that next uh, promotion or for that next job. So the f- top four Ron and I wrote down, um, this first one really reminds me of my dad. The first one is diligence or work ethic. I don't think mm-hmm. you can fake that. And when I'm at work and I see somebody else really hustling and paying attention to the details and is not, as they say today's world, slacker, um, that really makes a difference. And unfortunately, millennials are sort of tagged that they don't quite have the same work ethic as the generations in front of them. I don't know if that's necessarily true. I don't know if they just are not as interested at times and they get that bad reputation. So in your experience, Ron, how important is work ethic in the work world? Well, uh, I think you're right on all fronts there. the work ethic really does make a difference uh, long term and all too often if you're the one with the work ethic uh, you're, you, you think it's not appreciated or other people are getting away with not working so hard and I really have never found that to be the case. Pe- people know. People know who the hard workers are and where they are and what they're doing. Uh, it probably some of the things we need to guard against there is, uh, is it smart work uh, or are you just <laughs> working hard uh, and, and maybe not being open to new methods of work? Uh, you know, do you burn yourself out mm-hmm. because you actually work too much? And then one of the classical ones, I think, is when people get that reputation of being a hard worker, they are indeed often handed even more work to do because people know that they can depend on them, and that leads to its own difficulties. So uh, having a great work ethic and at the same time being able to say, no, I can't do anymore, or no, I'm not the best person to do that, or no, uh, someone else needs to learn that skill, what, whatever it is. That, that saying no for the person who uh, the work ethic really defines them can be difficult, and so that's kind of a learning experience there as well. Right. Uh, the millenn- uh, go ahead. Well, the, you bring up a good point, and maybe I'm getting off topic a little bit because I started off talking about what people could add to their portfolio. But 
often you you see a busy person and you give them some more to do and they'll find a way to get it done, but then they uh, lose their value. Let's say they're specialized for one area, but then they get busy doing all the things that you they weren't originally hired for. And even right. what they do really well gets watered down because they're too overloaded. So maybe the mm -hmm. skill that we need to develop is how to say no in a creative way to supervisors, meaning that, yes, I could add this on, but then I would not be able to do uh, what I'm specialized to do as well. We may, you know, lose some productivity over here. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. I, this is something I learned personally a long time ago, I think in particular in volunteer situations, like church, for instance. Uh, you know, I would be asked to do something in addition to what I was doing, and I would say, I would love to do that. I'd be happy to take that on. What What of these list of things that I'm already doing would you like me to stop doing? And just that question at least allowed for the conversation of, yeah, maybe you ought to keep doing those things because you're good at that. We'll we'll find someone else to do this. So uh, that creative no is is a very powerful piece, uh, and and focus along with that. I just finished writing one of my blogs on focus uh, in the workplace. The people I've worked with, who I would consider probably some of the best leaders. Uh, for instance, have always been focused on kind of three major things. And even though there's wonderful things that can distract them from that and very needed and useful things, I have I have watched them say, nope, it's not one of my three things. Someone else needs to step up or we need to recruit someone else here or someone else needs the training to do that or give someone else the opportunity. Uh, so... It's a combination of creating no and uh, creative no and, and staying focused as well. Right. So it's not only working hard, but working smart and finding the creative yeah. way to protect your your key strengths or your core strengths. Or what's the most important thing for your supervisor, your boss, for you to do? Meaning that yeah. if mm -hmm. you want me to be most effective in this one area then let's find ways to protect that or to help me supervise somebody else to do what you want to get done. Mm-hmm, mm -hmm. Well, the second thing on my list here is that what skills could really help a man at work? And the second one is what they're calling these days as soft skills. I don't know if you're familiar that that seems to be the coined term these days that employers are looking not as much for your... Uh, you know, the technical skills, but they're looking for the soft skills in addition to it. And it's being relational. How do you connect with others and build trust? And you wrote a whole book on building trust. Um, mm -hmm. But that um, they're looking for, like on monster.com, they talked about um, that they're looking for people that not only have the degree, but know how to communicate well with their peers. They know how to have be a good team player and contribute to a healthy culture. And they know how to do conflict resolution. And I mm -hmm. summarized all that under relational. Yes. Uh, to me, you're right on target. Uh, this, I don't even know what your other two are on your list of four you come up here with. But uh, 
this is the one I would put right at the top. Uh, I, I created a career out of helping people, people improve their, quote, soft skills because they're the, actually, they're the hard skills. They're the hard ones to do. It's easy to be competent. It's easy to, uh, you know, work in your area of expertise. It's easy to have skills to get things done. It's very difficult to build the relationships that in the long term is what makes things work. Uh, one of my clients for a number of years was the uh, head of the uh, IT, the information technology group. He was a senior vice president of that group for a very major corporation in the country. And he got to the point where he stopped hiring people with uh, computer information technology technology degrees and started hiring people from liberal arts schools because they knew more about relationships and culture and history and all kinds of things. Uh, he didn't intend it, but he actually ended up giving interviews on NPR on, on the topic because it was just so unusual in the industry. But he just got to that point where he says, look, I can teach you the hard skills, mm-hmm. what's known as the hard skills uh, within corporate culture. What I can't teach you are these soft skills I need to hire for the fat. And so he actually started hiring around those things. They're, they're very, very important. Ron, my number three and number four actually relate to soft skills. And I wonder which one do you think is harder? My number third skill is adaptability. Um, knowing that you're going to have to change. The only constant is change. And how do you change and adapt when you've given new uh, parameters at your work or new goals? And the last one is conflict resolution because you're always going to have conflict too, changing conflict in the work world, at home. And often you see people at work, they just can't handle that much change or that much conflict, and they sabotage themselves to get out of of the situation stuff hanging in there and actually learning and building more trust. So between those two, Mm -hmm. do you think one is harder than the other? Uh, That's a really good question, Paul. Uh, The adaptability can be difficult, although you do meet a lot of people along the way who say, Hey, I just love change and, and, and I love adapting to it and, figuring out new ways. I do think it takes an environment of accepting learning curves or accepting failure. Uh, You know, when people are asked to adapt, but then almost immediately are, you know, slapped down for doing something incorrectly or without enough thought, then that's going to stop the adaptability pretty quickly. But the conflict resolution one seems more universal to me. Uh, I don't think any of us like conflict resolution. Uh, and yet there are certain skills to be gained uh, that really help with that. And I would say, just based on my consulting career, I probably 
was rewarded a lot with uh, long-term client work and and uh, pretty good rates uh, simply because I got better at that one than a lot of people or than even I naturally was as well. It's, mm-hmm. it, it takes a lot of self-reflection. Uh, it takes a lot of self-esteem. Uh, it takes some real skills uh, to deal with conflict. But once you do, it becomes incredibly valuable and probably some of the more difficult situations I've run into. I'm, I'm thinking actually of a CEO of a pharmaceutical uh, startup, uh, I'll call it. It was well on its way, but uh, he, he just was so conflict-averse that uh, they couldn't come to any resolution on the leadership team, as soon as there was any hint of disagreement, uh, he would shut down the conversation because he just couldn't deal with his even the anticipated conflict mm-hmm. uh, that that would create, and that was very detrimental uh, to the organization. So, more important, maybe uh, certainly harder to to get good at. Uh, the conflict resolution is, and and I think maybe more universally rewarded uh, if you can gain some skills in that as well. I think that conflict is just tension and it's stress, and uh, if you don't look into yourself first and think, okay, how do I handle conflict? What is my fight or flight reaction? And learn about yourself first. Uh, if you're able yeah. to do that, then you're able to be more, a little more objective and go into a situation knowing that uh, you know the lay of the land, you know how you react, and you can stay calm and collected through that. Um, and I think in times of great need for leadership, the people that can stay calm and understand and don't look overstressed with conflict, or at least they seem to be able to manage it well are greatly respected by others and i think are trusted by their supervisors and their bosses if they see well this guy seems to be able to handle this um or at least is looking at long term they're not living and dying with every uh, month's you know bottom line they're they're more even keeled Mm -hmm. they're more consistent um they seem more mature in a way and i think if guys can go out there and and work on their own ability to handle stress and conflict and, and feel a more confident in that, that's going to give them a leg up. And you told me a great illustration a while back about the performance and that when people were under performance, the, you know, what was really happening, you talked about Tiger Woods and Michael Jordan, that it wasn't that in crucial, stressful times they were performing better than usual. They just kept on performing at the same level while other people were yes. performing worse under stress. So I think that's where I would connect this here is that mm-hmm. as men, if we can work on how we understand conflict, if we be able to re- listen to people and help them understand we really do care about what's going on, but then look and seek uh, strategic answers or plans, I think men are so quick to say, okay, what's the problem? 
How can we solve it? And then what's our critical observation of what's going on? You know, how can we outthink mm-hmm. it? Uh, I think it needs to be the, the both of those, how to think it through, but also how to uh, understand what's going on in the room between the people relationally. Well, and I, I think that relates to a couple of the things that come to my head as well. Uh, one is that if we're, if we're on a team and, and we work with this team on a regular basis, the best thing we can do is get to know each other as human beings. I actually would run this little exercise called human beings versus human doings. Uh, and it, it was intended to help people get to understand each other, who you are as a human being, not just what are you here to do. And in fact, when I ran that exercise with this particular CEO, and uh, his leadership team, he began to talk about his growing up years and that his parents were in constant conflict and he always found himself at a very young age stepping into the middle of that and, and trying to calm this family situation of the conflict. And as soon as he shared that, everyone else in the room went, ah, now we get it. Uh, you know, why he was so conflict averse. And that actually helped them as a team. Uh, if he would start shutting things down for one or more of them to say, look, look, we're, we're not angry at each other here. This is not something that's unsolvable. We just have different points of view on this particular subject. And to me, the other topic is just that, is that we all assume we see things a certain way and just about everybody else sees them similar, but they don't. Uh, Every human being looks at every situation and takes, has a different takeaway because of who they are and how they were raised and all the stuff mm-hmm. they've gone through. Once we can start accepting that, that that person just has a different view of this than I do. Let me let me discover that. Let me help understand where they're coming from on that, so I can better understand how we can move forward together. So, mm-hmm. uh, knowing each other as human beings and understand that we all view things very differently. Uh, can really help. Once once I say, look, I was there, I saw it, this is what happened, I'm correct, I'm right, mm. you're wrong, or you just have a different perspective, or you have a flawed perspective, or whatever, that leads to conflict versus, I know what my opinion is, I know what my view is, help me understand what yours is, so we can figure out how to move forward. Just uh, this week, I went to a training run was called Unconscious Bias, and they were talking about uh, bias is something we all have. It's mm-hmm. not that what bias is positive yep. or negative. It's just the way we've gone through life and see life and how our brain works. And one of the things that what really struck home to me was they were talking about that we all have a rules book uh, and how we go through life and what's important to us. And we were maybe taught mm-hmm. that as kids, you know, as silly as, you know, what way the toilet paper rolls to how you do your toothpaste to, um, but at work, how you even dress or what you do. And so 
for some people, their brain is so wired that if you don't go by the rules, they're going to remember that and they're going to have a bias against you um, based on mm. their particular rules. And so one man gave the example mm -hmm. that he went to a college, a small private college, and he had a business professor who always required that all the students had to wear uh, a tied class and they had to look mm. like they were in business and professionals and he was explaining that later on he was uh, in charge of a program where young college students were interning with him and the first day was the most important day as these young people came that he was in charge of that he'd had to go around and introduce to the vps and the president uh, when they came in the room, he noticed the, the women were appropriately dressed, but this one young man was dressed with a polo shirt and khakis and boat shoes. And immediately his rules, <laughs> his rule book mm -hmm. went off the map, and he pulled the kid aside and said, listen, you don't understand. This is not appropriate. And he got him different clothes. But at that point on, he always had a bias. He said internally, like, this kid is not going to come prepared. He's not going to do his homework because mm -hmm. of that one way he looked from mm -hmm. the very beginning or that poor choice he made in the beginning. So when we're dealing with somebody on a team and there's conflict, if we don't get to know them, we don't understand their rules book or what is important yeah. to them. And that, that illustration yeah. helped me out a lot today. I bet. That's really good. So did you have other uh, ideas of what things men should add to their uh, skill set or things that will help them at work? Uh, probably not. I mean, I said I would have started, for me, the top of the list is that soft skill. So it's building the relationships. I think all of these blend into that, as you said as well, the adaptability, the conflict resolution I probably would want to swing back maybe just a little bit to your diligence and work ethic thing because you did mention the millennials and their reputation. And I, they do have that reputation and reputations come, reputations happen because of certain consistencies. So I think maybe some of it's there, but it's really interesting to me. I mean, when, when you see a millennial get into whatever they're passionate about, man, they'll, they'll work circles around you. Mm -hmm. And I think to some degree, I've, I've been trying to figure this one out too. And even talking to my own kids, I find humorous because they're in their forties. So they're talking about the millennials. I, I sort of started talking to them and think about, well, you're a millennial and they're not really. Uh, but, uh, I think what's happening is we're, we're, have already ended or certainly coming to the end of this work life environment that really started after world war II, uh, when America was being built and created and structured and much of that earlier early leadership was driven by military thought and processes and procedures and it certainly became very hierarchy oriented through the years and i i just don't think they buy into that or appreciate that their approach is much different about Give me something I'm passionate about, I'm excited about, and I'll work circles around anybody. But 
our history, and when I say our history, I'm, you know, I've been at this stuff for a long time. I mean, I've been in the business world for 50 years. Uh, that history is tough for me to overcome. And so I can have this tendency to label them as being lazy or poor work ethic or whatever. And I'm, I'm not a hundred percent sure that that's true. I, I just don't think we've figured out quite, you know, the atmosphere they need. And they've, they've had role models very different from ours. They, they've seen role models drop out of college and become billionaires. And, uh, you know, we didn't have that to, to us. It was the people who worked hard enough to get to the top were the elite, the wealthy, whatever. And, uh, it's a very different world. So I, I don't know. I, I just wanted to come back to that to say some of the reputation is probably deserved, but I don't think all of it. I think mm. part of it's well, trying have- to fit into the atmosphere today. Well, having two kids who are millennials, I think what has happened is that their age group has not bought into working the system. You know, like you get a job, you work your way up, or you use pre-existing channels for success. They're much more yep. entrepreneurial. They're much more about their own passion. They're going to create a yep. new system. They're going to create a new path, and they feel very emboldened to do so. And... Um, and I, I admire that about my children, um, that they want to really work hard and they want to have a job that truly makes a difference. Uh, so much more uh, looking at topics, like you said. And I think that maybe is a part of the way they were raised and uh, the understanding of the whole world with the communication that we're not isolated in our own communities, our own country even. We're all part of this larger world. And I think... They want to do something that's going to make a difference, not just for themselves. Yeah. And you're right, their passion can be there in a great way. And the creativity really impresses me about millennials, too. Um, you know, mm-hmm. the, whole, the whole term, think out of the box, is so old. They're way beyond the box. They're on virtual boxes. <laughs> they're on, you know, they're, yeah, anything they know is box. possible. <laughs> it's virtual reality is so old school even for them. So the, mm-hmm. the creativity, I think, and the looking at new systems, I think, will really come out of this generation. But they're just not going to buy into working the system or um, working their way up. So the downside of that is they can be less patient. And I've seen that where I work as well. So if they don't see uh, a future right away within six months or a year where they're working, they're very okay with moving on to something else. And, and I mm-hmm. get it. I get yep. it. Well, Ron, one of the things I think is true, whether you're millennial or you're my age or your age, is that this world creates drama or people have drama. We have conflict at work like we already talked about. And I Mm -hmm. wanted to run by you four points I have about handling drama at work. And part of this, folks, is just recently during the winter months, we've had a lot of uh, extra activity at work and people uh, talking now, realize I work at a place that has about 500 employees. So there's a lot of potential for this small little community. It's like a small city to talk about each yep. other. And there's been decisions made. And so people come to me and say, what do you know? And other people say, can you tell me what's going on here? And at the end of the day, I, I, I sort of think, okay, 
these are the four rules that sort of keep me grounded. And so I'm going to go through these and, and see what you think of them. Okay. Mm -hmm. The first one I've had to really get to is the need to know rule. Um, mm -hmm. I, if I'm curious about something and I think, oh, what's going on over there? Then I stop myself and say, do I need to know that to do my job? Do I need to know that to do my job better? Is it important for me to know that or am I just being curious just to mm -hmm. be on the inside? And so I stop and ask, do I need to know? And that's the same thing is true when I work in healthcare is that we don't share patient information with somebody that doesn't need to know. It's always a yeah. need to know basis. Is it important for their job? The second rule I have is need to share rule. Um, I'll have somebody who'll come to me and they'll say, tell me more. And I'll say, do I need to share this for myself or do I need to share it for their good well-being as well? And there are times mm -hmm. where I'm trying to figure out the land, the land, how, how this is going to affect my job. And I will go to another yeah. person and say, I need to share you with something. I'm feeling this is my interpretation of what's going on. And I'm sharing you that I'm a little concerned. Can you help me understand? And they may come back to me and mm -hmm. say, you know, Paul, I can't share it. Or they can say, no, I think you're, you're not seeing it, you know, with a good point of view. And so that helps me to put the drama in perspective instead of, mm -hmm. you know, letting it build to something that, I'm imagining it to be when it really isn't. Um, the third uh, point I have is to stay in my lane. And that's sort of a quick little quip that my wife and I say that sometimes we go to work and we say, you know what, I'm so busy what I already am responsible for. I don't have the time or the energy to get involved with everybody's drama. So I need to stay in my lane mm -hmm. and stay focused. And then the last a lesson or a point I have for handling drama at work is know when it's time to share with your supervisor or boss. When there's a problem that looks big enough and it affects not only my job, but I think it affects the bottom line mission of the uh, where I work, I need to go share that mm -hmm. my concern with my supervisor or boss. Because if I were in their shoes, I would want my key employees to come to me and say, hey, listen, uh, this situation, I'm concerned it's affecting our customer service, our performance. Um, I'm afraid of what the, or concerned about the risk it has for our company, and I need to share it with mm -hmm. you. But yeah. those four are the parameters I use to sort of say, okay, is this just a drama gossip thing, or is this something I need to be involved with? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, as you were saying those, my reaction was those are all really good, uh, almost to the point of just post them on the wall someplace <laughs> uh, uh, to think about that. But what struck me is I found myself thinking about the counter to each one of those at the same time, yeah. and, and how do we balance that? Uh, so, you know, when you said need to know, uh, what is that need to know rule? Well, yes, and, and I think because of your experience in the healthcare industry, that's helped form that a lot. I mean, certainly in that industry and with our laws and everything else, there's just there's just things you don't share, and people have to understand. And I think in that industry, to a great degree, they do understand that there's certain things that just can't be shared, but 
uh, what if you're making French fries for a living? Um, you know, is there something <laughs> that's sensitive enough that I shouldn't know, or should I know? Uh, you know, one of one of the guys who's inspired me a lot, uh, just virtually, I don't know him personally, is Simon Sinek. Mm-hmm. Uh, S-I-N-E-K is his last name, and, and he's sort of built his whole teaching, consulting career on the why, how, what. And, you know, he said most of the time we approach that backwards. We talk about what you need to do or what I do. And if you really want people to get lined up and on board, you got to start with the why first. Uh, so letting people know why. Uh, if there's a need to know that interferes with that, I think even though sometimes it may be the right thing to do, it can impact our motivation of what we're doing or how we're doing it or whether we're doing it right. So, I I don't know, balancing that. I guess balance, balance, balance is kind of what struck me about all of these things. Uh, your, Your use of the stay in your lane was a very positive view of that and it's it's one of those cliches that I maybe like the least in corporate <laughs> environments. I, I think that concept of stay in your lane, and I've heard all kinds of corporate executives use that. If everybody just stays in their lane, we'll be fine. And that is probably a negative impact on team building more than anything. Uh, you, you know, you want people complete. You want not a swim team staying in their lanes. You want a water polo team figuring uh, out how to do something together. Uh, you know, it's the way I think about that a little bit. So once again, stay in your lane. Yeah, the way you thought about it, that's, a, that's an absolutely positive thing to do. When I look at it, and I'm trying to figure out how to make teams work better, to me, stay in the lanes is is one of the worst things you can do. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it, it was just, it was really interesting to hear you kind of walk through those. And and in the end, unfortunately, we probably don't have answers. But I just keep thinking about how how do you balance every one of these things. Uh, I think your need to share was really a good one uh, for me. Uh, If you can stop and question yourself, because, again, I think part of our human nature is I want to show someone else that I'm on the inside, that I know what's going on, that I got the scoop, that, you know, whatever it is. But if you can, you know, very clearly stop yourself and think about is this a good idea should i be sharing this with this person or is that just meeting my ego and feeding it why am i sharing this really question i think that's a beautiful uh, question uh, for yourselves and with your supervisor as well you know uh again so much of this depends on the culture of the organization and how a supervisor or leadership handles that kind of thing, uh, whether it will work out or not. 
you know, you may share something that you do have true concerns that could negatively impact the mission of the business that you're on. And yet if that's used in such a way that it comes back that, oh, well, you're the snitch or, you know, you're the insider that caused all the problems, that's going to destroy it just as fast. So there's almost two sides to every one of those yeah. things. That, uh, right. Uh, it's amazing. Yeah. Well, the, the, mm, using so. an, another sports analogy, you have the New England Patriots. Bill Belichick always tells his player, just do your job, and he gives very specific yeah. instructions. And yet, you have one person just doing their job, but within a complete system, a whole team. Yeah. And that doing their job at some point includes covering somebody who dropped the pass or who did do their job completely too. So I get what you're saying about my handling drama at work. At one point, you do need to stay in your lane, stay focused. But if I only worry about my job, then I'm not a good team player. I'm not doing right. the extra thing if somebody drops the ball that I would want them to do for me. So yep. in some ways, drama at work is a great opportunity to build stronger relationships, but it's also an area where you can over-function. And, and that's another word I like talking about lately, meaning that where you see someone that is not doing what they're supposed to do and you think, oh, I want to help them, and you overfunction by doing what they are supposed to do, instead of doing it on a temporary basis or helping them to learn from it, you continually overfunction and, and cover for them or uh, do yeah. extra, and you're not helping the organization long term because you're hiding basically a problem instead of really helping somebody own up to their own abilities and what they should be yeah. doing. Yeah. So again, balance, balance, balance. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it's, it's hard when I think drama happens at work because no matter who you work for, you're not going to agree with every decision that your supervisors or the bosses at whatever level is making. Because we all, yeah. I think a lot of, most people think I, what I think is the right way <laughs> or what I believe is the right situation. Um, and it's hard to understand what leaders are doing unless they do start with why. You talked about earlier about that to help a team really be strong, you have to start with why are we doing something. And I think mm -hmm. even more and more, I think people want to know why. They're not satisfied with just saying, hearing, we're going to do this, this, and this. And we have a brain, we want to know why are we doing this? And if I know why, then I can get on board. What do you think prevents yes. um, leaders from getting into the why? Do they, do they fear that people will question their decision-making processes or is it an authority thing? Well, it can be either, uh, you know, and I've seen both sides of it. One of, one of the things that I've seen leadership teams do is that leadership teams in particular have an opportunity that uh, almost nobody else does in the corporation. And that is they can get together in a pretty short period of time, a compressed period of time, go through all of the emotions that we go through with change or adaptability or a new direction or setting direction or whatever. Uh, you, you know, there's the on death and dying uh, old history of these are the emotions you're going to go through mm -hmm. 
when you're dealing with death and dying, and and you don't change those emotions, you you know their their anger, their you know all kinds of things. About the only thing that's different between each person is how quickly you go through that particular stage. Mm-hmm. Leadership teams have the opportunity to do that in a very short period of time. And when I remind them of that is that, hey, 20 minutes ago, two of you in this room were really angry. (laughs) Or, you know, when we started this conversation, one or two of you in this room were really concerned about what does that mean to your own job or your own division or your own paycheck or your own bonus or whatever. And, and yet they eventually work through that. Well, they forget that they went through those stages. And so they throw out the result, the final answer, to the organization with this concept in their head that we've, we've already sort of balanced through all that stuff and everybody else is good and they're smart and they'll see that. Well, they don't. They, they don't have the opportunity to talk through those things. They don't have the opportunity to express that, well, that may be a good idea, but does that mean I'm going to lose my job? Mm-hmm. Or that may be a great idea, but do I have to start over again in a different part of the country, in a different division? Do I have to uproot my family to do that? Uh, you know, those questions are left unanswered. <laughs> and so, you know, sometimes it's just, I, I've seen the people who say, look, I'm, I'm the boss, and when I say you're supposed to do that's what you're supposed to do you're not going to be here those kind of bosses don't last long in in my opinion Uh, but uh, they're out there so you get some of that but I I think most of it's just inadvertent most of it just doesn't realize (laughs) I used to I used to run this game it actually came out of MIT years ago and it has kind of a funny name it's called the beer game and it has nothing to do with drinking beer, uh, but uh, it essentially sets up this whole supply chain thing of mm-hmm. of the retail store at one end and the you know the brewer at the other end, and and it's working orders through the system of distributors and wholesalers and retailers and all this kind of stuff. But essentially, what it does in this crazy little game is it compresses a whole business down to a couple hour time frame around one table. Hmm. And I was doing that exercise with uh, one team and it was happened to be with the finance team. And right in the middle of the team, one of the players was the chief financial officer. He was the CFO of the company. And right in the middle of the game, he, he pushed his chair back from the table and just stopped playing. And, and I didn't, I didn't know what was going on. And finally, I, you know, I questioned him. I said, "Are you going to play with this? Did we do, something? you know, what, what's going on here?" And he says, "No." He said, "That just demonstrated to me exactly the problem we've been struggling with for the last five years." And that moment in time kicked off a sort of a two-year revamp that they spent millions of dollars sort of redoing how they did business because all of a sudden he saw in a compressed period of time 
how things were working. But when things take months and they're across the country and one thing happens over here and one thing happens over there and you don't see the results of this until three months later, it was invisible. Well, leadership teams have that ability to compress what's going on in the corporation in a short period of time. The rest of us don't. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I think they just they forget that <laughs> because they went through it, they worked it out, they saw how it could play out, and the assumption is, well, look, we'll just explain this to the people. This is how we're going to do it. How? Not why, but how. This is how we're going to do it, and they'll get it. But we don't always have that opportunity down in the organ. My thanks once again goes to Ron Potter for giving us two podcast for the price of one we talked for quite a while and i had to edit it down a little bit but you can tell we love talking about how teams work and how people get ahead in their careers and how you can find more satisfaction in your job so once again thanks for listening to man to man podcast if you have any questions email me at contact at greatamericanman.org check out our website send us some information we're always looking for articles as well so thanks for listening today and have a good night